Before we read our scripture passage for today, I want to uh, review a little bit of last Sunday and some great feed, uh, conversations that have taken place between last Sunday and this Sunday. Last week, if you weren't here, we began a new teaching series uh, creatively entitled How We Change. It's a series focused on how we change uh, in ourselves and in the world around us. And this is something that we believe is possible. It's something we culturally think about at this time of the year. What do we want 2024 to be like? How might it be different? How might it be the same? And um, we as people of faith have an, a basically optimistic viewpoint about God's potential in our lives and in the world. God can change things. God can change us. God can change our sense of purpose. God can change our marriages. God can change our friendships. God can change uh, our careers. God can change this world. Our whole faith is built on the potential of change. But it's not built on the potential of change because you and I make resolutions at a certain time of year. That's not how we change. But rather we change because God gets involved in our lives and starts changing us. We saw this in the first week of the series. We began in Acts chapter 9 and we looked at the opening verses about how Saul has moved and is on the journey from Jerusalem to Damascus as he's going up there to continue to persecute and arrest and potentially murder more Christians. We read about that as he's going and on the way he encounters Jesus. Jesus knocks him to the ground and asks him why he is persecuting him. Saul goes into Damascus, it says, and he has lost his sight. And for three days and three nights, he doesn't eat or drink. Now, this is a moment of incredible change in Saul's life. It's a moment of the great kind of pivot point in his existence. And yet it doesn't involve him making any decisions, having any plans, having a strategy, or making any kind of resolution. It begins because God starts working in this way that transforms him from the inside out. So what we invited you to do this last week is what we said, have a conversation with God. To ask God what it is God might want to, most want to do in your life. You see, if Saul had made resolutions, this was not what he would have changed. His faith, his zealous faith was what he thought was his greatest strength. It's that that God wants to change. So we said, what would it mean for you to begin this year by putting everything in your life on the table and saying, Lord, I want to be a part of what you are doing in me, around me, and in this world. And I have loved, genuinely loved the responses I've had from so many of you this week about how you're engaging this. I know several of you who contacted me that are using and have been using the New Year's Examine that we gave out and talking about how God was kind of evident in the last year in ways that were surprising as you look back and you were curious about what 2024 might offer. I had a great video that was sent to me. One of the illustrations we used last week was God repotting a plant and loosening the soil, moving from one pot to another. And I exhibited how little I know about gardening uh, in that illustration. And, uh, and someone sent me a video about the loosening of a soil and a plant being repotted from one plant to the next. But it's kind of a spiritual thing when you think about, right? About how God might be repotting our lives in 2024. I had somebody that sent me, following the example of Aaron, a, a young woman who I shared about last week, they wrote as much of their life as they could on uh, post-it notes and then put post-it notes all over their table to show that in all of their lives, everything was on the table for God. 
I also had some people who wrote, and I was so grateful for this, with great questions, asking like, I don't really know if that applies to me right now, putting everything on the table. I've got a mortgage, I've got retirement to pay on. I've got people that depend on me. We have benefits through my job. Am I really able to, is it responsible of me? Is it right of me to really consider all the parts of my life? And I wanna urge all of us to consider the question is yes. You see, as we'll see today, when we put everything on the table, it's not that God's going to upend every part of our life necessarily. And if God wants to, God cares about the responsibilities and the people that are a part of our life. But there's a chance if we put everything on the table for God in 2024, that there's a lot of things God may not want to change. Sometimes as we're going to hear about today, that can actually be more challenging when you're ready for a change and God's like, nope, you're where you're supposed to be. But there's a difference in asking the big questions of what God might want. Even if you're called back to exactly where you are, there's a big difference in that and not asking the questions and feeling stuck. And I think there are a lot of people in our world right now that can feel stuck. They just feel like they're not certain what to do and they just got to white knuckle it and grit their teeth and keep doing what they got to do. And that is not flourishing. And so I want to continue to urge all of us to keep having these conversations with God. Keep putting everything on the table. And today we're going to talk about how we continue to move forward in seeking to get clarity of what God might be stirring the waters at. We're going to do so through uh, verses 10 through 19 as we continue on in Acts chapter 9. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house And he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we gather and worship today, we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, we talked about how when God gets involved in our lives, when we put everything on the table, that it can be disorienting. I know that some of you have experienced that this week. It's like, is that really what God's doing? Saul is disoriented on the way from uh, Damascus to, I mean, from Jerusalem to Damascus. And in fact, we see that this same theme continues because God shows up and now is not just talking to Saul, but talking to Ananias. And Ananias is disoriented by what God wants him to do, isn't he? It's like, I want you to go to this guy Saul from Jerusalem. And Ananias is like, he's not a very nice guy. 
I don't want to go spend time with him. I don't want to go show up in his life. Do you know what he's done? Our calls can be disorienting at times before we can be reoriented in what the new thing is God might want to do in us and in this world. But today, what I want us to focus on is how if we go through moments of disorientation in our calling, how it is we start to gain clarity. My hope is that today and in the week to come, you start to gain more clarity about what God might want to do in your life and in our world in the days ahead. And what we see in this passage is that while there are different ways God gives us clarity, one of the most essential that we talk about a lot here at Covenant, and we're going to be talking about it again today, is the importance of community, the importance of relationship, the importance of connection, the importance of friendships, relationships that allow us to go deep in our faith. Because Saul starts to gain clarity about what God is doing on his life, why God showed up and knocked him to the ground and disoriented him. But the way he starts to gain clarity is through this relationship with Ananias. I know we talk about community a lot. I know if you've been here a while, you're like, I can't believe we're gonna talk about this again. But it's so important. It's so critical. And there may not be a better, more unique passage that talks about what Christian communities to look like than this one we just read between Saul and Ananias. Like, there's a way of thinking about that really everything church is, is that we are meant to be in kind of Ananias-type relationships. That everything church is supposed to be about is that we're supposed to be walking together. And sometimes we need Ananiases in our life to help us gain clarity. And sometimes we are called to be Ananias in the life of another. That's what Christian community is supposed to be. And I want to talk about the importance of community uniquely through this passage because there's two different things that I think are really important that you see in this passage about community and what we're looking for here. And the first is this. The first is, is that Ananias actually has insight into what God is doing in Saul's life before Saul does. When Ananias pushes back on the Lord and says, are you sure you want me to show up? And, 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 you know, God says, Ananias, I have set him aside. He is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to Israel, to kings, to all different kinds of people. And I'm going to show him how he has to suffer for my name. Meaning that while Saul is just disoriented here, Ananias actually has a sense of clarity that Saul doesn't yet have about what God wants to do in Saul's life. Part of why we push towards community, saying especially at a large church with multiple worship services and everything else, you've got to be a part of a community and not just part of a crowd. Part of why that is so biblically important is that just like we see here, there are going to be moments when you feel confused about what God might be doing in your life or in your relationships or where God is in a certain moment. And somebody else is going to have an insider clarity that helps the fog to clear for you a bit. Sometimes the way we figure out what God wants to do is about other people that are sent to us in community. And in a culture like ours that is highly individualized, highly individualized, this is my life and what I'm going to do and nobody can tell me what to do. This is a radically countercultural way of being. Sometimes when you're confused, clarity comes because others have insights you don't quite yet have. Because the Lord's revealed something to Ananias that's not yet been revealed to Saul. You see that? It's so vital we live in community. But here's the other part. And I think, and this could just be me. I think this is so cool, what I'm about to share with you. And if it's just me, just, just humor me for a second and act like you're still interested. But not just Ananias has information about Saul's life before Saul does and clarity 
But I think it's interesting in community that it's Ananias is how Saul is healed. Like God could just restore Saul's sight, right? Why is it through Ananias? Why does God send sometimes us to each other to be the hands and feet of God rather than just God just changing things? And I think what you see here, which is so interesting, is that Ananias doesn't just have insight into what God's doing in Saul's life, but Ananias, and I'm not certain he even really truly understands it fully, Ananias actually embodies what Saul's life is going to be built upon. What Saul is going to be teaching as his name changes to Paul. What his, and it's spelled out here about God being the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now think about this and what this means. Stick with me here. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are anyone who's not Jewish. And one of the, the, the first controversies of the early church, which sounds weird to us because we're familiar with Paul. It doesn't make sense. But at the time, it was really controversial, is whether people who were not Jewish, who started hearing about Christianity, needed to become Jewish before they could be a Christian. Because the earliest Christians didn't think they were starting a new religion. They were Jewish. They had a Jewish Messiah. And the Messiah, as foretold by the prophets, had come into the world. The Savior was here. They weren't starting something new. And so when people outside of Judaism started hearing about Jesus and wanting to follow him, there was this whole thing, well, they've got to become Jewish. This is a Jewish Messiah. It's a Jewish movement. And part of what that meant also was they had to get circumcised. There were things they had to do in the law to qualify to belong. And that would have put a dent in the church growth plan in the early church. And there were a lot of leaders of the church that said, yeah, you've got you've to do these things to become into the covenant people of God. And, it, and there's actually, I want you to see, there's a logic to that that makes sense. Paul was one of the primary voices who said no. Who said no, that the miracle of Christianity, what makes Christianity different from any other faith, religion, spirituality in the world, is that there's nothing. God's grace is so wondrous, so huge, so beautiful, that we are fully welcomed and reconciled to God, all because of what God's love has done on the cross. That our sin is, is, is taken by Jesus and that we are credited with the righteousness of God. And just like we see with the thief on the cross, when Jesus is being crucified, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That thief had to do nothing, nothing except accept that God's love for him was real in order to be with him in paradise. Now, where did the apostle Paul in that come up with this idea that it's all about grace? That amazing grace, where did that, did he was just sitting there someday going, I think I'm smarter than the rest of you guys. I got this whole theological argument. I think it's all about grace. I just got this insight, this idea that's come to me that I'm gonna write to the Philippians about and I'm gonna write to the Ephesians about and I'm gonna write to the Galatians about and I'm just gonna teach them this way of being because I know so much. Or maybe it's the echoes of Ananias who when Saul is blinded and unable to see, think about this, and unable to eat or drink, having murdered and persecuted people of faith and planning to do it again, that when Ananias enters the room and sees him totally helpless and defenseless, the first 
two words that Saul hears from a Christian in Damascus are these two gorgeous words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. And what in the world has Saul done in his life to be called a brother by Ananias? Absolutely nothing. And yet the love of God is so enormous that Saul, who has no resume to be included, is fully accepted, fully welcomed, fully forgiven, fully belongs. And so when there were people in the early church going, no, 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 it makes logical sense that you've got to follow the law to be included in this thing because it's a Jew. And Saul's going, no, no, no. This is a celebration that we have to do. Nothing except recognize the love of God. Christianity is a celebration of what Jesus has done. Changes the entire fabric. You see that? That when his sight's restored, it's by one who embodies what Paul's greatest teachings are going to become about. It's in community that we gain insights that others might have about us. It's in community that we might catch the stuff of God, the holy, sacred stuff as Paul does from Ananias through the example of someone else, maybe who doesn't even fully understand this power of what they're doing. It's got to be done together. Who are your Ananiases? Who are they? In a culture that's becoming increasingly lonely. One of the most important parts of my week this week was getting together with a friend of mine and just talking about life, talking about uh, uh, family, talking about responsibilities, talking about things we were thinking about, thinking things, talking about all kinds of different stuff. And it wasn't this planned thing. We just kind of got to, we were able to get together at the last minute and he was talking about his life and I was talking about mine and we were asking questions of each other. We were sharing our just perspective with one another. And I don't know if I was an Ananias to him. I tried to be in the things he was going, but I know he was an Ananias to me. I know that through his questions and through his words and through his perspective that, that what God is doing around me, my family, that, that there was just a little bit more clarity given. What church is supposed to be is a system where we are Ananiases to each other. And we realize that it's through the Ananiases of our lives we can get clarity. One of my favorite examples I'll close with is this just to kind of show us the power of this and what it means. It, it, it comes from 18th, late 18th and 19th, early 19th century in Great Britain. As many of us know, one of the great stains upon the globe that still exists today, the great evils that still exist today is the evil of slavery. Still is alive as we are in our work with IJM are continuing to seek to stand against in this world. But certainly in our nation and around the world, one of the examples that most comes to mind of the horrors and the evil of slavery was the North Atlantic slave trade, where people were taken from Africa and brought to different parts of the world for, forcibly, to America, to the Caribbean, to different, literally different places all around. And there were a lot of countries, including ours, that profited off of that greatly. There were a lot of people that made a lot of money off of this horror. One of the nations, not the only one, but one of the nations that for over 100 years received incredible profits from it was Great Britain. But as Great Britain in the 19th century uh, made slave trade and then slavery illegal, 
They didn't do it like happened here through a civil war. There wasn't a bullet fired in that. And historians say that there were a number of reasons for that, but one of the most important was an individual. An individual who was a member of parliament, a member of the government, named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, if you know that name, was someone who was born in the 1700s in Great Britain in England. He was a rich kid. He was a part of the aristocracy. He had a lot of money. His family had a lot of money. He went to Cambridge at a young age. He was known for drinking. He was known for gambling. He was known for just kind of traveling and having a good time. But Wilberforce in his 20s started feeling the emptiness of that life, the pointlessness of that life. And he started asking some deeper questions of what life was about. And in his 20s, he had already been elected to a member of parliament. He was already in government because he had the money to kind of make it happen. William Wilberforce became a follower of Jesus, became a Christian. And after he became a Christian as a member of parliament, he was exposed to a group that at the time was on more of the margins of society in UK government, and it was the abolitionist movement. Now, Wilberforce, like a lot of people, wouldn't have said necessarily he was a proponent of slavery. He wrote some about this, but that is more that he just sort of didn't think about it all that much, and it was just kind of a part of life, and you just sort of, that's how we act with a lot of injustice in the world today. It's not that we're okay with it, but it's, you know, just, it's just there. But he started learning more about it and started considering his faith and, and what it meant. He felt a calling. And so with the urging of some of the others, in 1789, he introduced the first bill in Parliament to abolish the slave trade that Britain was a part of. He was ridiculed for it. He lost the vote decidedly. He was threatened by people. His children were threatened by people. But Wilberforce, year after year, starting in 1789, almost every year, started introducing bills that he almost knew were going to lose and started lobbying and working for the eradication of the slave trade. It took 18 years until in 1807, Parliament finally voted not to abolish slavery, but to abolish the trade. And Wilberforce didn't stop there. He started working in 1807 for the abolition of all slavery throughout the British Empire, and he lost, and he was threatened, and he was ridiculed, and he was mocked, until in 1833, almost 45 years after his first bill, the slave trade and slavery throughout the British Empire was declared illegal and was abolished without a single bullet being fired. And Wilberforce died three days later. It's an amazing story. And while people love, and I love and am moved by the story of William Wilberforce and what he did, what not nearly as many people know is how he did it how for over 40 years he fought the scorn and the ridicule and the defeats. And it wasn't because he was some superhero. Wilberforce talked openly about the defeats, about the depression, about the darkness, about the loss of confidence that he had, that he could make any kind of difference when loss after loss after loss happened in this bill. But you see, William Wilberforce didn't stand by himself. He and his family had moved to an area of London called Clapham, and he had joined a Christian community there. It's what we might call a church, but also a small group. It was a group that became known to uh, people throughout the time as the Clapham Sect, S-E-C-T, which doesn't have great connotations for us today, but at the time, it was describing this group of Christians. They were a part of each other's lives. They prayed for each other. And when Wilber, Will, William Wilberforce was ready to give up, it was these Christians who held him accountable and said, no, 
God has placed you here for a reason. God hates the evil of slavery, and you are in a position to do something about it. They prayed for him. They showed up for him. They supported his family. They supported his children, and they kept walking with him through life year after year, defeat after defeat, over and over again until justice ran down like waters. We love the stories of Saul who converts and becomes the apostle Paul and writes the New Testament, but without Ananias, there is no Paul. We love the stories of William Wilberforce, a person who perseveres for over 40 years and changes the world, but without the Clapham sect, most of whom's names have been forgotten by history, there is no William Wilberforce. The most important thing we have of how we often gain clarity in our lives are the people who are walking with you. And so I'm gonna ask you again as we close, who are your Ananiases? Because if you want to know what God's purpose is for you in this day and age, you got to figure it out with some people. And so this week you've got homework, just as you did last week. Last week we invited you to have a conversation with God and to see what God might want to start to put everything in your life on the table. This week I invite you to invite one or two people into that conversation. Share with them what you're wondering about. Share with them the disorienting thing that you wonder if God might be doing. If you don't know what God might be doing, ask them what they think. Let them ask questions and throw out ideas because sometimes that is how God dislodges things in our minds and in our hearts or with other people. And if you go forward this week and you, and you honestly look at it and go, I, got, I know a lot of people at work and everything else, I don't have anyone to ask that question with then starting next week, we are going to have ways for you to get involved and to find what it means to be a part of a circle of community here at Covenant rather than just part of a crowd. We're going to have a a guide, a spring guide, which is fascinating uh, when the temperatures aren't going to get above freezing that we're calling it the spring guide. But it's really taking us into winter and spring, and I think it's winter and spring, and it's going to have on-ramps into how you can get plugged in. And if that is a step you need to consider taking, you're like, well, I've tried a small group. It didn't work. Try it again. I signed up for a Bible study. It didn't connect. Good. Try a different one. My wife has this great phrase that some of you have heard her use, and I used it several months ago, and I did not attribute it to her. And I apologize for that. But it's a phrase that some of you have heard her teach in in Bible study. If you've got breath in your lungs, you've got a call on your life. If you've got breath in your lungs, you've got a call on your life. You have a purpose for this year. Every one of you. In big ways and in small ways. But the only way you're going to get clarity is to journey towards that purpose with an Ananias. Amen. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us as we seek to journey forward in community to gain clarity as to what you want for us all in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.